listening to Validation Matters, a podcast series brought to you by Validation Institute. A membership organization, Validation Institute is a trusted independent third-party resource for healthcare purchasers, vendors, and benefits advisors. Our guest today is Al Lewis, the CEO of Quizify. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Al. Thank you so much, Greg. And Al, welcome to Validation Matters. Uh, thank you for having me on, Greg and, and Fred. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you here today. And obviously, we're uh, just finishing up uh, part of a conference here. But wanted to uh, start out, Al, obviously, you've been in this industry a long time, done some really unique work, and, uh, and really helped uh, move this industry forward. So why don't you give the audience a little bit of your background and also maybe a touch into how the Validation Institute started. Okay, well, uh, my background, uh, I did uh, a bunch of years at Bain and & Company, and uh, I got involved in the uh, utilization review industry, and I ran a company that merged with another company, and I didn't have a chair when the music stopped, so I didn't have a job, and that was around the time disease management was starting, so I hooked my wagon to the disease management star, which uh, turned out to be a very good idea. Uh, and uh, rode that particular uh, uh, fad for about, I don't know, 13 years or so. Uh, then segued into wellness um, because disease management looked like it was failing to save money. In fact, I was the one actually who pointed out that it was failing to save money. There's even a blog post, you can find it, that uh, somebody named Vince Caritas wrote uh, after a conference called uh, Founding Father of Disease Management Astonishingly Declares My Kid is Ugly. <laughs> so then I decided to get into wellness because, well, maybe disease management didn't save money, but everybody said wellness saved money. <laughs> so, so I figured it must. But as I looked at it, every time I un, uh, turned over a rock, I found I found rot underneath. I think I'm mixing cliches. Uh, and uh, so then I I kind of went a little bit rogue, and more than a little rogue, I went quite rogue because the the I. I I didn't think I had anything to lose because the person who ran the Population Health Alliance at the time, who's no longer is long since gone, uh, among other things, uh, had blacklisted me. So I figured, what the heck? I, you know, if a prisoner has a death sentence, there's really a limit to how you can punish them, right? So I, I wrote a, a couple of books, uh, one with Tom Emmerich called Cracking Health Costs, and one with, uh, by myself called Why Nobody Believes the Numbers. And met a whole bunch of different people that way, reconnected with Fred. And then, in terms of how the Validation Institute got started, uh, reconnected with Sean Slavensky, who was then working for this Intel GE subsidiary called Care Innovations. He was running it, actually, uh, but had been in the wellness industry uh, years ago, and it sold out to, uh, to Humana. And he was now in the business of, of patient monitoring, home patient monitoring. And he was uh, complaining because many of his his competitors were just basically saying whatever they wanted to say and winning accounts. And he was trying to, to actually be data driven. So he said, Al, wouldn't it be something if we could come up with a, a third party validation service where you'd have to submit your results and only if they got validated, could you say that they were valid? Uh, well, it happened that he said that at just about the right time. Uh, he had the budget. I certainly had plenty of free time. I didn't have many clients. You know? And, um, and so uh, we started it. We started and uh, actually brought Fred in as one of the advisors, uh, along with several other people. Uh, and uh, it, got, it, it got immediate traction. A number of companies signed up for validation, both uh, employers, health plans, on the 
total member uh, event rate side, like am I reducing my heart attacks, am I reducing my diabetes events across my whole population, and also quite a number of vendors signed up. So that worked out very well, but then uh, Sean left the Validation Institute, and it was kind of rudderless, and you can imagine the people at GE and Intel saying, what, what are we doing with this thing? I mean, it has nothing to do with either of our businesses. And that's when uh, Vidar came along. And I think I'll, I'll uh, hand the talking stick over to you to talk about the rest of what happened. Yeah, so, uh, and we got some of this, obviously, with the, with the talk with RD, who talked about Vidar picking it up. And, uh, and it's really grown quite a bit. Obviously, there's a lot added to it now, which is, which is fantastic. And what we really wanted to get to today, Al, is, is uh, over to the years, you and I have looked at these things and validated results or looked at different companies. And there's a new study out in JAMA that sort of caused a bit of an uproar entitled Effective a Workplace Wellness Program on Employee Health and Economic Outcomes, a Randomized Clinical Trial by Zerui Singh Song, oh. excuse me, and Catherine Baker, you know, two, with Catherine at least, very well known in the field, having published some other stuff. And um, maybe you can give a little bit of insight into the study, and we can discuss that a little bit, and then talk about some other things about validation. I'm happy to, Fred. So first of all, the study is as good as studies get in terms of design. Uh, you could poke two small holes in it, one is that I think it was only 18 months of, of data, and it's possible that you'd have what's known as a quote, what we used to, at Bain, when we would look at uh, company projections for profit, we would call these things hockey sticks. I think it's now in the general population that, that somehow, starting in month 19, you're going to find these huge savings. So one limitation is it's only 18 months. The other limitation is it is a retail industry and their turnover is fairly high. On the other hand, number one, they weren't even close to making money. They weren't even close to reducing risk. They basically, I think they measured 81 variables and only two had statistically significant improvements. And of course, if you're measuring statistical significance at the 95th uh, percentile, 5%, uh, you're, you're going to always get 5% that, that are randomly going to show right. an improvement. So essentially it showed nothing. And all the people in the industry who used to idolize Catherine Baker because her initial study claim savings, suddenly we're saying how she doesn't know how to do research and the study was bad and all this stuff. Right. And originally, I think she said there was like a 3.41 to 1 ROI or something like that. It was 3.27. 3.27, excuse me, right. The 3.27 to 1 ROI study, the so-called Harvard study, has been the gold standard for vendors trying to show savings. If you go to the uh, internet, they tell you how many citations it has. It has the most citations of any article ever published in health affairs. Right. And so while this study, obviously really well done, as you talked about, random patrol trial, split the groups up, um, and, and at this point, it's 18 months. I understand that they may be looking longer now, is my understanding. Uh, they're, going, they're going to have a second round. Right, which will, which will also be interesting. So obviously, as you've mentioned a couple times to me and others, this isn't the first one to show this. There have been a few previous to this, right? Uh, well, few would be a little bit of an understatement. I actually called up on my computer here uh, an article on employee benefit news that I published in May uh, saying that actually it's now 12 in a row that have shown no savings. So before this one, you had uh, one that was done by the National Bureau of Economic Research, also very well done, I might add, also uh, randomized control. Uh, trial also got a lot of publicity, uh, exact same result. And then you had a whole bunch of others that appeared to show savings, but they were comparing participants to non-participants. And when you accounted for that, you showed no savings. So I'm looking at another one that was uh, won the award for the best program, 
where uh, they showed massive differences in cost between participants and non-participants, and the 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 uh, the, the um, uh, what's it, the differential? There's a word. The delta. The delta. Well, yeah, it's actually another word, but yeah. the delta between the participant and the non-participant cost trend separation. Separation. That's the word I was looking for went from zero when they when they set out the two groups in the, in year zero to roughly 20% favorable to the participants in 2006. Now you might say, wow, that's that shows that the wellness program worked. How do you know that's just because of the participant versus non-participant bias? Well, the answer is they didn't actually get around to starting the program until 2006. They separated the groups into participants and non-participants. For 24 months, there was no program. And in that no program period, the participants somehow nonetheless dramatically outperformed the non-participants. Right, which probably points to, to an issue with, with, uh, with the, comparing those two groups to begin with. So we have these 12 or, or 11 studies that were done before this one. And, you know, we've talked about this. This doesn't really mean take wellness and just don't do it in essence, but maybe perhaps don't consider wellness as a way to save money. There may be other reasons to do it. Well, uh, there's actually two, two questions in that one. Both mm-hmm. Good questions. Uh, when, when I used to teach economics, I would, I would tell the kids, actually the kids, one of them, I think is a billionaire now. So I would tell the students uh, that in economics, the answer is almost never zero or a hundred. It's almost never all or nothing. And the same is true in wellness. Uh, people say, Oh, you want us to throw out our program. And I said, no, I'd like you to screen employees according to established clinical guidelines, which means once every X number of years for younger ones and perhaps annually for much older ones. And certain things you, you screen for and other things you don't. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's all laid out, you know. Yeah, and so what you're talking about is with this, with this typical wellness program, you're going to have a health risk appraisal. And companies tend to do annual lab and biometrics, right? But that's not the guidelines. Especially from the USPSTF. Right. If you, you do not test everybody for everything every year. And, in fact, many of the companies that do that also make people get a, a checkup. Right. Which is doing exactly the same thing, which besides being a colossal waste of money, multiplies your chances of false positives. Right. And so if you have these false positives, obviously, then what you're going to end up doing is is potentially getting somebody checked out for something that they don't have, which increases your costs even more. Uh, and, and, and in fact, they may even, and my ex-sister-in-law is an example of this, they had to go get checkups every year. And she mentioned that uh, that she was feeling a little run down or something. So the doctor um, checked her thyroid and it was inconclusive. So they did a biopsy for cancer, it was inconclusive. So she had her thyroid out uh, and there was no cancer. All as a result of her employer saying, she had to go get a checkup every year. And the, and the reason this is such an ingrained behavior is just to hear her tell it. She's a physician, so she should know better. But to hear her tell her, instead of being really miffed at her employer for getting her into this stuff, um, her, uh, she was, she's grateful for the wonderful care she received. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So th- it is important to try to help individuals with their health. I mean, we can all agree on that. We could all do a little bit better on our health. Some people could do a little more, some could do a little less. So what sort of things should companies consider doing? Well, uh, my mantra is to do wellness for employees instead of to them. Uh, and that's uh, to, 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 to the point that Fred just made. If employees do want to lose weight or they want to stop smoking or something like that, you want to be right there for them. You want to help them in their journey. On the other hand, trying to push them over that cliff 
uh, if they're not willing to do it, uh, besides they'll resent it a great deal, it'll cost a fortune, and you're not going to accomplish anything. So uh, four and not two. Now, how can you tell the difference between four and two? Well, if you if you if you have an appeals <laughs> an appeal system in your wellness program, by definition, you're doing things to employees, not for them. If you have to bribe employees with a lot of money, you're doing it to them and not for them. If it's something that employees would sign up for on their own or with a modest, I call it a green eggs and ham incentive to get started, uh, then you're doing wellness for them and not to them. Got it. And when, so things like smoking cessation are obviously good. Helping people try to figure out if they're interested, how to exercise or eat healthier, important things. Um, you know, one area we've talked about, both of us in some sense, is also this idea of helping people with health literacy and better understanding their health. So are those things that people should be considering putting in then or adding to what they might have? Uh, yes. Yeah. So you gave uh, three very good examples. One is uh, maybe an on-site fitness center, and those have kind of fallen out of disfavor. And, and people have said, well, we'll pay for your gym membership. And that's not such a good idea because then the person doesn't have any skin in the game. But paying for half of somebody's gym membership Mm-hmm. Uh, would be a good idea because they still have the skin in the game. Uh, having healthier alternatives, not just having healthier alternatives in the cafeteria, but it's your cafeteria. You can you can contract with uh, what's a Primark or whoever it is who runs these things mm-hmm. to price certain things one way and certain other things another way. Now, you can't go overboard with that because then what happens is employees start going off site. Um, so you have to do these things subtly. And then to Fred's other point, Fred and I are both involved in the in the industry of, of teaching employees how to health literacy and essentially employee health literacy, mm-hmm. teaching them things like if a medicine says take with food, you know, how much food, how often, how close to taking the medicine do you have to take the, to eat the food? Yeah, yeah, I think those are all important. And um, let's, let's move a little bit to, obviously, this study talked about validation, you know, or, or the random control trial, you know, showed that, hey, you're not going to save money with, with wellness programs. But there are examples, for example, in the Validation Institute of companies that are in that space that have been validated for their results. They have submitted results that were around different measures, which I, I guess you get into that a little bit, risk uh, reduction. Yes. Actually, there are a two or three validated wellness companies, two of which are validated for making honest claims out of a thousand. But the third, U.S. Preventive Medicine, is validated for actual risk reduction. Now, note, I did not say return on investment. They did not ask to be validated for that. I doubt very much they would have been. But for risk reduction, they hit it out of the park as much as I've ever seen a vendor hit it out of the park. Now, we don't just measure to get validated. You can't just say we took these high-risk people and they went down. You actually have to measure all the changes in risk in every direction and then compare that to D. Eddington's you know, very influential work where he did a Markov chain uh, and, and showed what happens to people at different risk levels if you do nothing over a period of two years. Right. And so when we're talking about risks now, we're talking about, okay, you're a smoker, a non-smoker, seatbelt wearer, you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you may, it may be a risk around your weight. Those are the kinds of things that are typically measured on an HRA. So something that a, a company can do, and then you compare that and show that you're actually moving these people to a healthier risk status, which may or may not influence costs yet. Yeah, it, it may influence costs long after they retire. I do want to take issue with one little thing. Yeah. The seatbelts question has got to sure, go. Sure, sure. Okay, so so uh, I would propose replacing it with a uh, you know talking while driving, texting while driving type question. 
because not everybody in the world knows that. No, that would be a great one too. Obviously, it's a big issue. Yeah. And if you began to get people to focus on that, and recognize, yeah, you're at a higher risk. If you're texting while you're driving, someone's getting up in an accident. Mm-hmm. You're going to see that in your claims yeah. cost. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah, so, so the uh, um, the impact. What I always say about the seatbelt thing is, if you're routinely hiring employees, oh, I say two things. Number one, if you're routinely hiring employees who don't buckle their seatbelts, you got bigger issues than your wallet. <laughs> and and number two, there's probably not been an employee in the history of employment who has not buckled their seatbelt took a health risk assessment, learned that they were supposed to buckle their seatbelt, and then started buckling their seatbelt. Yeah. So let's, let's, go a fur, let's go a little bit further upstream into some conditions and costs. So let's take a look at things. And you've, got a, you've done a lot of work on data and incidents of this stuff in the mm-hmm. populations. Where would you tell employers to focus, say they were looking at chronic disease or, or, or clinical conditions or even things like obstetrics, where would be the places that they should look to to potentially arrive at some sort of an ROI? Well, that, that's a great question. There are really two or three different questions in there. The, the first is that there is a, a line in my uh, book, Why Nobody Believes in Numbers, which actually was the basis for the original validation. Right. That says everything in life has an 80-20 rule. And in healthcare, the 80-20 rule is that 80% of the time, there is no 80-20 rule. So it's very difficult to quote unquote focus when your costs are spread out everywhere. And then you might say, well, let's focus on the highest cost people, which is a good idea, except that um, people tend to dramatically overstate the savings from that because high cost people in 2019 are not going to be the same as in 2020 unless you're taking some rare drug that you can't do anything about anyway. Uh, What I often say with the high cost people is that that they tend to measure, like let's say high cost highest cost is is heads and low cost is tails, the vendors will breathlessly announce they just saved 50% because they've turned half the heads to tails. I would say to the vendors, call me back when you save 60% and I'll give you credit for the test. Right, because in in essence, what what you're talking about is somebody who is high cost in a given year, for example, somebody has bypass surgery. They hit your claims in 2019. The odds of them having a second bypass in 2020 are much lower, so they'll drop out of that high cost pool, but somebody else is filling it. So that's why you need to look obviously much broader and not just have a vendor focus on your high cost people. Right. It's a, it's a whack-a-mole situation. You, don't, you, you know, you can't take credit for the moles you whack without detracting the ones that you didn't, subtracting the ones that popped up. Mm-hmm. Um, you had another question, which is uh, where within the cost drivers, say for inpatient, it, it does the most expense lie? And the, the funny thing is you can ask this to employers and what are, what creates the plurality of your hospital admissions. And none of them have any idea, not none of them, but many of them have no idea. And yet it's maternal, it's birth events times five over whatever's the next highest because in, in birth events are all measured separately. You got your normal liver, your cesarean, your, your, uh, your well baby, your, you know, your preemie, uh, your, Cesarean following uh, or, or normal following premium, I mean, you have to add them all together. They're going to be about 20 events per thousand uh, inpatient events out of your total of about 60. So that brings up an interesting point, too, particularly in deliveries. And we've, we've uh, seen these numbers before and talked about it some is this concept that, well, you can do obviously maternity management programs to help people uh, be healthier and attempt to reduce preterm deliveries. But also, there's still this issue in the United States with an over abundance of C-sections. And so if you can go in and begin to move that number back to normal deliveries, obviously you'll cost less the next year as well. 
Uh, you know, I have to say, when, when I was at Bain & Company, we're in the mid-'80s now, the C-section rate was 20%, and we were all saying how ridiculously high it was, and we would try to consult for these hospitals to get it down. And what is it now? It's like 30-something percent, right? It's not going south anytime soon. I mean, it, it, if there is a vendor that can, that can actually reduce C-sections, I would, I would, they would fail into validation. <laughs> so um, some of the other things... Can you talk about some of the examples of some things you've seen that would that employers should take a look at when they're when they're hearing from their vendors, hey, look what we did. Some of the examples of where the numbers really are manipulated a bit inappropriately. Yeah, uh, manipulated a bit inappropriately is also an understatement. Um, <laughs> the, the, there are basically five ways people will, um, frankly, lie about their numbers. One is that they'll only look at high-cost people who decline or high-risk people who go down in risk. And a corollary of that, number two, is if you're doing a condition-specific thing, they'll say, well, we looked at all the diabetics, or all the asthmatics, to use an example that Fred used today, all the asthmatics, and their ER visits went down by X percent. Well, a, a number of people never show up with a claim for asthma until they get to the ER. They weren't in your initial pool. So you have to, this is why for validation, you have to do all events, all people, all years, and just compare the trend. Uh, the, the third thing I think we talked about is uh, participant versus non-participants. A classic, classic, um, it, probably the thing that's fueled the growth of the industry more than anything else, except for actually further regression to the mean, which is really a, uh, a combination of the first two things, which are uh, high-cost people going down, high-risk people going down. Um, that's all regression to the mean. And then the fourth thing is uh, comparison to trend. Oh, well, we avoided this cost um, because, yeah, your trend went up by 3%, but it was going up by 7 or 8%, so we say 5%. And the final thing is complete, lack of, complete and utter lack of attribution to a program. So if you're doing a wellness program that's designed to uh, reduce risk for diabetes and, and heart disease, and all of your costs fall, you can't say, oh, that's because of the wellness program. The best example of that, and I, I won't mention the name, but if somebody wants to write to me, I'm happy to mention the name because they've definitely heard of them, was a wellness um, write-up that was part of Catherine Baker's initial 3.27 to 1, where the, per the person writing the study said, and we found savings in blood-borne diseases, stomach cancers, and basically did just they did a shopping list of all the costs, all the areas, and found the few that improved and, and attributed the program, attributed those to the program. And if I see them again, I'm going to say, can you name a blood pressure disease? <laughs> uh, no, of course not. I mean, this is so attribution, attribution, um, uh, participant versus non-participant, comparison versus trend, and all sorts of uh, regression mean issues. So each of these are something that, you know, obviously when people submit for validation, that those get looked at and we can determine, yeah, that's appropriate. Um, you know, what you did is the right way to measure. It's an appropriate measure. Your program had a likelihood of impacting that measure and, uh, and ensuring that what those people presented is actually real. Uh, yes. And, and to, to once again, go back to the U.S. preventive medicine example, that would be a very instructive one for anybody to look at because we teased all the regression of the mean out of it because we looked at a, a, essentially the natural flow of risk. Otherwise, we looked at all the low people who went up in risk as well as the high who went down. So, and, and we, there's no participant versus non-participant bias because the entire population was sampled 
And you might say, well, weren't there people who got sampled the first time who just didn't get sampled the second time? We looked at that number and it was, we disclosed it, but it was low enough that it wouldn't have materially affected the result. Mm -hmm. What would you tell people? Um, obviously, there's all this new technology out, all these cool ideas about doing stuff, and hey, we're going to influence these people. What would you tell employers to be thinking about as they maybe look at all this cool new digital tech, et cetera? Uh, I would tell them to uh, take a cold shower. Um, <laughs> there are all the, like, to, if you use the example of companies claiming to reverse diabetes and that kind of thing, you just don't have enough. Number one, it's extremely difficult to reduce diabetes, reverse diabetes. Number two, you simply don't have enough diabetics who are going to crash until they get on Medicare to make it worthwhile. And number three, there's an awful lot of snookering going on in that field. Um, I think that to, if I were to advise employers, and I do, and I think Fred would agree with me, we might only agree as far as this point, but saying that uh, health literacy, uh, teaching employees things like how much radiation there is in a CAT scan or how much sugar there is in a granola bar. People don't know this stuff, you know, and it's a good, good way to, good idea to teach them. Yeah. Uh, clearly it's a little bit hard to ask individuals to be responsible for their health if they don't have a basic understanding of some of the things they're going to be asked about or required to do. So that's why that health literacy area is so critical. And, and let me give you a specific example is in the state of North Carolina, the, the uh, person who's running the program has sent a note, to 750,000 employees and said, be a smart consumer. Yeah. <laughs> That's really helpful. Absolutely. So let me bounce to a little bit of a, a different topic. As, as the health system changes, we move to value-based care. We always talk about validation, et cetera. Any thoughts on moving risk to providers? And uh, You know, it, every 10 or 20 years, that kind of comes into vogue. And maybe someday the uh, artificial intelligence will be smart enough to actually genuinely be able to assign risk. But what typically happens is you move risk to providers. Now, if they're fully ca capped, like Iora Health is yeah. for Medicare and Medicaid, that's, that's a different animal. But trying to move portions of risk to providers is, is a fool's errand. I mean, they're just going to figure out ways to game the system. I mean, it, the healthcare is all about gaming the system when it's, there's a reimbursement involved. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much, Al. As always, it's great to talk to you. Great insights. A great pleasure. And, and that'll have to do it for Validation Matters this and week. And thank you, Fred and Greg, for having me on. And that will be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Al Lewis, CEO of Quizify. For more information or to play the game, go to www.quizify.com and follow Al's work on Twitter via at Quizify. Validation Institute is a network of trusted healthcare vendors, health benefits advisors, and purchaser benefit managers focusing on delivering better health value and stronger outcomes than conventional health care. To get involved, go to www.validationinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Valid Points newsletter and this Validation Matters podcast for an informative series of broadcasts featuring top industry talent. And finally, do follow them on Twitter via at Valid underscore Institute. For Fred Goldstein, Al Lewis, and Validation Matters, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.